0: You have reached the dumb Christian. I am your host, Jonathan, and today we are going to look at one hell of an entrance that Jesus makes as he returns to Jerusalem, where he has been put on the permanently do not allow entry list by the religious leaders of the day, and yet he has to go back to Jerusalem because that's where the culmination of his ultimate purpose for coming to earth is going to be fulfilled uh yeah and and we're gonna look at this triumphal well as the bible calls it this triumphal entry uh and uh, what is happening as jesus rides in on a donkey as we explore this ancient text which is about to get very real we will probably get a little bit colorful so buckle up and welcome to dumb christian Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, John chapter 11. And at at the beginning of John chapter 12, they throw this big party to celebrate what Jesus had just done, raising this man who'd been dead for four days back to wholeness, life with no rot, no decay, not a zombie, a real person. And the news about this is spreading like wildfire, There's this, um, I I don't remember the miracle that Jesus performs, but there's this encounter that people have with Jesus in Mark and they walk away and they say, we've never seen anything like this. And here people are just like spreading the news. You guys, you guys, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and he's coming. He's here. Come meet this guy. And they can't stop talking about what Jesus has done. I'd like to take a little caveat right off the bat here and and draw a distinction between how people respond when they have an encounter with Jesus and how, at least my experience with the traditional Western 2000-ish 20 um, church has kind of responded. And, and so there's this idea that maybe you're familiar with it. If you grew up in the church or you've spent any amount of time in the traditional Western form or structure of the church, there's this idea that believers in Jesus should be excited to talk about Jesus. And uh, it kind of grates on me, this type of language. We should be excited to talk about Jesus. There's a massive difference. Between that type of mentality and the and the attitude that these people are embracing right off the bat, it's that they actually had an encounter with Jesus that stirred in them this desire to eagerly talk about Jesus. They can't shut up about Jesus. They just want to tell everybody what he did. And I I think repeatedly we see that there's this, that's the way Jesus interacts with people. That's the way he wants to be talked about. That's the way he wants to be experienced. I don't think Jesus is this like character for us to read about and then for us to force ourselves to want to talk about him, but that he wants to grant us access us or anybody or these believers, or he wants to grant people access an experience of him that leads them into this attitude of, I can't stop talking about what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing. And that's what we see right here. People are coming, they're flocking to see Jesus. And he says to his disciples, all right, guys, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. But Jesus, they want to kill you. You're on the permanently banned list right? You're, they're not, you're not allowed back. They want to destroy you. And he says, I know. But that's where we have to go for me to fulfill my ultimate purpose here on earth. So they start to make their way into Jerusalem. The crowd that had been gathered at, at first of all, um, Lazarus's funeral, they witnessed the resurrection. Then the crowd grew when people came to have a party about Uh, Lazarus' resurrection. Now this massive crowd is getting even bigger and bigger and bigger as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. People are just flocking to the road that comes into Jerusalem from Bethany. And as Jesus is coming down the road and, and getting closer to town, more and more people flock. And there's a few things that are happening as Jesus enters into town. Your Bible probably has a bold heading that says triumphal entry we're gonna explain why it's called that they're doing a few things first they find a young donkey for jesus to sit on so he's walking into town but the crowd is just so massive you know just a few rows out nobody can see jesus so they put him up on this animal they found a young donkey put him on it and he's riding into town you know like a pope like hi the uh the um beauty queen wave And what they're doing, the crowd is waving palm fronds, or like a branch that has a bunch of palm leaves on it. They are laying down their cloaks, their outer garments, which we'll talk about, and they're shouting this phrase, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, what is going on here? The palm fronds. First and foremost, this is like um, what maybe you're familiar with. If you've spent any like holidays at church, this is the event that we refer to when we say Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, because this event occurs one week, exactly seven days or like eight, you know, it's one week, Sunday to Sunday before Jesus raises from the dead. Spoiler alert. Sorry. And so it's Palm Sunday. It is Sunday when this event occurs, at least uh, the best way we can understand the unfolding of these events. They're waving palm fronds. There's a lot of like spiritual layers of what's going on here. But what we're going to try and do is we're just going to try and look at what is happening from a very practical cultural position without trying to make it super spiritual But there are some things to it that we just have to acknowledge. Palm fronds are, they come from the Greek tradition. Now, Israel has been oppressed and ruled by first the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, now the Romans. And the Greek tradition of waving palm fronds when a king and an army walk to and through the town is a celebration of the King's victory in battle. This is the picture that we see as they're waving the palm fronds while Jesus enters town. It is this Greek tradition declaring Jesus is victorious. Okay, victorious over what? Well, when they shout Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means God, please save us. So waving the palm fronds and shouting Hosanna is kind of like this marriage between a crying out to God. They've been crying out to God, God save us, God save us. And they're waving the the fronds as a declaration that God has saved us. He's given us victory and Jesus is the guy who's going to lead us into victory. The Jewish mindset, expecting and anticipating God's Messiah, His Christ, the one He's going to send to to redeem Israel, but ultimately also all of creation, is there's this expectation that the Messiah is going to be a warrior king. So when they're waving um, palm fronds uh, as a symbol of victory in battle. And speaking out, Hosanna, Hosanna. It's this marriage of Jesus is about to lead a rebellion and we are going to follow him into victory and he will be our king. Now, laying down our cloaks, um, attire clothing attire was a bit different back then, they had. Underwear, which is was very different to our modern day underwear, they didn't have bras and boxer briefs, they had more like long john underwear, okay, it, it was like it covered the whole body, and is very modest, um, but you would still wear clothing on top of being fully clothed, and this was called like a cloak, or a garment. And this was something that you put on top. And really, in a lot of ways, the way that they dressed was no different then than the way that we dress now. In the sense that I want I'm, what I'm wearing is a declaration. I want to show the world who I am. I'm wearing my um, Slipknot shirt because I want everyone to know, you know, that I'm a, a metalhead or a maggot, whatever they call themselves, right? <clears throat> or I'm I'm wearing a Madonna shirt or i'm 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 i wear a shirt that signifies my god the god of nike i worship nike or adidas or reebok right or we wear clothing to indicate i really i worship the god of um you know, the wolf crying to the moon and, you know, those those t-shirts or the space kittens or bay once. And there's all these different types of clothing that we have access to, but ultimately what we're trying to do is say to our friends, family, everyone who sees us, hey, this is a reflection of who I am. I want you to know who I am. And as best you can, I'm communicating that with what I'm wearing. That was the same back then. If it was they didn't you know they didn't have logos and Uh, pictures of uh, full house on their t-shirts but they colors and arrangements and patterns certain colors were very expensive to use as a dye it was very expensive to make purple as a color dye for clothing and so this is why purple is very frequently associated with royalty because only the royal could afford purple and then there were some in less expensive colors that maybe some rich people could afford, and then even lower, you know, down to like dyeing your garments with um, red mud, and it gives your clothes like a rustic red brown color. Or maybe you can't afford to dye your clothes at all, so you just have this white wool garment that's dirty, and everything. So when you put this outer garment on, it's a reflection of this is my position in society based on the colors and the patterns and for someone to remove their cloak and lay it at the feet of someone else is a a declaration that says your position in society is higher than mine so when everyone is removing their outer garments these cloaks their name brand clothing and laying it at the feet of jesus as he enters into town Waving palm fronds, shouting Hosanna. It is a declaration, Jesus, among all of us. You are of a greater status and position than any one of us. You are king. You are the one who God sent to save us. They're declaring, uh, in essence, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one God sent to save us. And we are celebrating now your victory as you lead us into Jerusalem, and into this rebellion where we're going to be victorious over uh, Rome, really. And that's the expectation of what's happening here. And it's such a significant event in the culture and and the society of that day that even non-Jews are coming to see, who is this Jesus guy? What is this that we're hearing about this Jewish fellow? I would even speculate that they're interested in hearing, okay, hang on. The, the king of the Jews is about to cause some upheaval and he's going to do something significant. I want to see what this is about. This is a really where the, the notion, the title, when, when people say king of the Jews, this is that moment where it's like, oh, they've basically all declared he is our king. He's going to save us. He's going to lead us into a new free nation under the sovereignty of God, and he's going to give us that kingdom forever. This is the idea behind their uh, celebration, this triumphal entry. Even non-Jews want to see who this Jesus is. Who is this Messiah? Did the God of the Israelites really send someone to liberate them and give them freedom? And so we have this collection of Jews and non Jews who are flocking to Jesus in droves. They want to see him. And it says, even the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non Jews are coming to check out Jesus. And he, he kind of gets everyone's attention and he says, Look, I'm not a speculative. I'm, I'm not a speculative. What? I'm not uh, a spectacle. That's what I was trying to say. I'm not a spectacle. I'm not just some showman trying to get attention. I'm not here to sign autographs. I'm not here for selfies. I'm here to tell you what the father would say and to show you all the things that the father would do. And a little bit of this is resonating with the Jews, like, yes, the Messiah is going to lead us in a godly way as the king, just like they would, they desired for King David and Solomon to lead in righteousness and to lead according to God's goodwill and his purpose and that he was going to protect them, give them victory in all these ways. But I'm not here to put on a show. I'm here to to just show you what the father is like because all the ways that you think about, talk about, and interact with the father are off. Some are way off and some are off just a little bit. But what you need to understand is the father tells me what to say and the father shows me what to do. Everything that I say and do comes from the father. And they're kind of like, yeah, okay, okay. And then he says, and I am going to leave soon. Now, he's specifically referring to, he's kind of using some metaphors, euphemism. I don't know exactly what he did say, but the way that John records the conversation is the Son of Man, me, Jesus, the Messiah, I'm going to be lifted up, and then I'll be gone for a while, and then I'll come back. And they say, well, Okay, we believe you're the Christ, but we're really confused because the our Bible, the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, because that's all they had up to this point. Our Bible says that the Christ remains forever. He's going to establish a kingdom in, in the lineage and the likeness of David, and he will be a king forever. So he can't leave. So you can't. What you're saying isn't quite resonating with us. We understand, but it's disconnecting a little bit. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die. And this is where he really starts to lose people. Uh, Okay. But wait, you just said that you only say and do the things that the father says and does... And so they're starting to make this connection to understand that what Jesus is saying is that the father would die. Now, ultimately, what Jesus is trying, the groundwork he's trying to lay is he is going to die as the perfect sacrifice. So we're going through Genesis. We just looked at Isaac uh, on Monday about how isaac is actually a picture that points us to see that jesus is willingly going to lay his life down as a sacrifice um later in exodus and leviticus deuteronomy we begin to see that the system of sacrifice requires a pure sacrifice in order to pay the price to fix the brokenness caused by sin now there's a lot of big fancy words i'm trying to avoid but ultimately when when each person sins, they're breaking, they're causing damage to their potential relationship with the father. When Jesus says, I'm gonna be lifted up, I'm gonna go away, I'm going to die, what he's looking forward to, pointing towards is, I'm going to die in order to fix that brokenness in your relationship with God. I'm going to be a sacrifice that takes care of the consequences of sins, and I will be the solution to the problem of sin. And what so so ultimately, that's the long term message that Jesus is trying to lay out for them. But the way he phrases it here is I only do what the father shows me and I'm going to die. So what you're saying is the father would die. God, creator of the universe, almighty, king of kings, lord of lords, alpha and omega, he would die for us. And he starts to lose people. In a matter of moments, they go from celebrating this triumphal entry of their king to really questioning Who is this Jesus guy? What? Wait, wait. Is he the Messiah? This, it doesn't match the things that I expect from Messiah. And that's also an interesting uh, note about Jesus is that he does. He rarely, if ever operates in a way that we expect him to. Hmm. That's a, I say we, but really just in general, right? Anybody. And he continues to pile on top of saying things that are turning these people away because they're expecting that here comes Jesus, this liberator, this king who's going to give freedom. He's going to judge the wicked and evil Romans, the pagans of the day, and he's going to reward the faithful Israelites who remain. And he starts to speak about this judgment that they think he's going to be involved in. And he says, look, I didn't come to judge the world i am not here to condemn pagans and gentiles and and greeks and romans i'm actually here to save everyone the israelites are so focused on god's going to save us and restore our kingdom and our nation, but go back to Genesis when God is making the promise to Abraham where he says to Abraham, I'm going to send a gospel. I'm going to send good news through you, Abraham, to bless the whole world. And this is what he's doing through Jesus. When he says, I didn't come to condemn, to judge. I came to save. <sighs> And then Jesus says this thing that I think is fairly, it's fair for it to be difficult for us to accept. It was difficult for them to accept. It's difficult for us to wrap our heads around. he says, um, I am the way to salvation. He says, look, all the ways that you believe that um, your behavior, how well you can follow the law, how well you can be good enough doesn't save you. Only I can save you. Really what he's saying here in in John is he says, believing in me is the only way you can have right relationship with the father. And this is like layers of things where he's like, the father shows me I'm going to die. And that means the father would die for you. But to, to have a right relationship with the father, you have to believe in me in what I'm about to do. And so it's it's layers and layers and layers. Please go read it for yourself. I always say this. It, it probably will make a lot more sense than the way I'm trying to explain it. But he says, the only way to have right relationship with the father is to believe in me. All these commandments that you guys have held on to, it really comes down to one And he says, I'm not here to judge, but judgment comes to the person who rejects believing that I am the solution God sends for the sin problem. Okay, I have heard many times and even wrestled with this idea that God or Jesus are narcissistic and self-centered. Because it sounds like what Jesus is saying here as he's entering into town to these people who want to worship him as God and follow him as king is it's my way or the highway to hell. So the argument that I hear a lot of times is, and I've heard this many times, is that God is narcissistic. Jesus is narcissistic because it's this idea. No one can love you the way that I love you. You will only find salvation through me. And yes, that is a, that is language that narcissists use. But. I guess if you could at least humor me a little bit and leave a comment or let me know if you have a better way that Jesus could explain this. Cause if the truth is no one can love you like God loves you and no one can save you except Jesus. If that's true, how else can you possibly say that? If Jesus is the is literally the only way, how can he possibly say salvation only comes through me without sounding like a narcissist? And I think that's kind of like one of the traits that, not that specifically is a trait that rubs off on us, but when scripture tells us at the beginning in Genesis 1, 1, we're created in God's image, there are these qualities, these good qualities that he, um, possesses that are passed on to us as traits but we take them and twist them abuse them pervert them and that's right sin whenever we take these good gifts and we we make we choose what's good for us when we choose what's good for us is different from what God chooses for us or what he would have for us that's sin that's when we cause brokenness to our relationship with God and and so I I look at the way Jesus talks about himself, and I can't, I'm really trying just to even like, if for no other reason, I you know, without trying to put this in, turn this into a sermon, just trying to go bare bones, what's happening in the Bible, I can't for the life of me figure out how, what other way Jesus could possibly frame this truth if it is in fact true. Uh, sometimes you just got to say what's true the only way you have your relationship is fixed with the father is if you believe in the son and it's it's this idea that look you've lived in such a way that you know you're not good enough you can't keep the whole law at some point every single person breaks one of the laws and and if you break one you've you've broken the law it's all one and it's it's not that you're a good enough person but it's this declaration that acknowledges Jesus is good enough i can't be good enough but Jesus is he is able to fix that relationship with the Father, to give us restoration and resurrection. And he's not just this like p- celebrity preacher who's trying to gain followers. He's got the authority to back it up. He's been demonstrating miracles, healing the blind, raising the dead. This guy knows what he's talking about. And he says it all comes down to one commandment believe in Jesus. And then over the next five days, because that's what Jesus has, he's got five days to cram like for a test, right? Like to get all the rest of the stuff he never said beforehand, I got to get all the last little bits in to teach my disciples, to teach them what it's like to trust in God, to love each other, to serve one another, to, to live like you believe that Jesus is good enough. Not that you're just some shitty person that trying to earn God's favor, but that Jesus is good enough. To fix that brokenness even when we are not and then what happens after this in the gospel of john is that john is going to take the next five chapters to cover just a few hours of jesus last moments before he is illegally arrested illegally tried and illegally crucified but that up to that point is John chapter 12, Jesus' triumphal entry and how he responds to a to a, a plethora of people who are celebrating his entry as king. I've been your host Jonathan the Dumb Christian. I love you guys. Next time. And that is what a triumphal entry looks like when it comes to a king who never colors within the lines, right? uh be sure to check us out on youtube dumb christian podcast we got exclusive content coming up on there we're trying to put out more Uh, we also have some new fun things in the works that will keep you guys posted so stay on the lookout hit subscribe like share this with your friends and family so you don't go on this journey alone ring that bell so you know when new stuff comes out i love you guys i'll catch you later